Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and associate professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Paul Galvez about his new book, Corbet's Landscapes: The Origins of Modern Painting, which is actually coming out today from Yale University Press. We're recording this interview on May 24th, 2022, and I'm happy to be celebrating its release with its author today. I wanna thank everyone at Yale University Press for providing me with an advanced copy of the book so that I could read it just before its release for this interview. Before we begin, let me tell you a bit about my guest today. Dr. Paul Galvez is a research fellow at the Edith O'Donnell Institute of Art History at the University of Texas at Dallas, as, one of the co- as well as one of the coordinators of the Institute's master's program in art history. His research interests range broadly, from realist painting to the Russian avant-garde to contemporary abstraction, and he takes a multifaceted approach often drawing from philosophy, literary criticism, the history of science, and conservation practice. He contributed to the catalogue raisonné of Paul Gauguin's Tahitian paintings, and he's active as a curator and critic, organizing exhibitions of post-war and contemporary art in both France and the United States. The book he wrote, which we'll be discussing today, is the first monographic study of Gustave Courbet's landscapes, ranging from the grottos of Courbet's native region to the beaches of Normandy. Dr. Galvez follows the artist as he travels and uses a palette knife to transform the romantic landscape into a direct, visceral confrontation with the material world. The Corbet he discovers is not the celebrated history painter of provincial life, but a committed landscapist whose view of nature aligns him with contemporary developments in geology, history, linguistics, and literature. Corbet's Landscapes explores these astonishing paintings, 
staking a claim for their importance to Courbet's work and to later developments in French modernism. I'm thrilled to be discussing this book with its author on its publication today, on its publication day today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Paul Galvez, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I wonder if you might begin, uh, as we always do, I like to ask this question about background. Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, where you are from originally, where you studied art history, maybe any mentors you had along the way. The acknowledgments of this book are a, a little bit of a who's who in the art history world. Uh, they're enticing in and of themselves. So just give us some of your background, if you would. Sure, Alison. Um so I'm from Philadelphia, or rather the area around Philadelphia, a town called Villanova, um, which is probably more known for its basketball team um, <laughs> more than anything else. Uh, but it does produce the occasional art historian. Yes. And, um, you know, unlike, uh, you know, probably many art historians who speak on this program, I actually did not grow up going to museums, and mm. galleries, New York City, even, you know, the Philadelphia Art Museum. Um, you know, my parents came from the Philippines, were first-generation immigrants, and art was low on their uh, list of priorities, um, particularly European painting. Um, so I really discovered art history as, as a field of endeavor when I uh, went to university, which was at Harvard, where I was an undergraduate. And um, I had the, the great kind of uh, fortune to be at a university that not only had a great art history department, also a great university art museum. Um, the Fog, you know, is one of the best university collections in the country. And it had a particularly vibrant um, undergraduate student organization affiliated with it. The, uh, I think it was called the Friends of the Harvard University Art Museum. And so between that and the department, uh, which unlike other departments actually facilitated a lot of face time with undergraduates. Um, you know, you always hear graduate students complaining about, you know, I don't get to see my professor, you know, as often as I would like. But uh -huh. uh, when I was in college, I had tutorials with senior faculty weekly for, you know, two hours, which wow. graduate students are incredibly jealous of. Um, and when I went to Columbia later, you know, I, I would kill to have that much time with my <laughs> advisor. <laughs> So it was, you know, it was a really um, important moment for me. Um, I basically discovered art there, um, uh, both in terms of intellectual interests, but also the actual physical works, um, which, you know, over the course of my career has become very important for me. Um, and hopefully will come out in the book um, when people read it, because uh, it's very much focused on, on the description of, of paintings. Yeah, you know, I was struck that the and I love when books do this, you began with visual analysis. I mean, you began by describing one of these Corbet landscapes that you're going to make a big deal of uh, throughout the rest of the book. And I think that grounding in in looking at the art, which is so ever-present throughout this book, I mean, I, I like to see that. I'm sure there are those who think, you know, oh, there are better ways or different ways to begin books, but that was definitely present for me. Well, one of the things that... Um informed that really was that ever since I was an undergraduate, I wrote art criticism um, mm. for the, mm -hmm. the newspaper, the campus newspaper. But then later when I graduated for 
basically any venue I could write for. <laughs> so I think that one of the first ones is actually film reviews at the back of Time Out Paris, back when it, <clears throat> excuse me, existed. Oh, um, wow. They were completely anonymous, so you can find them now, thank God. But, <laughs> you know, that, I tell my students, you know, that's how you start. And once you build up this portfolio, you, you kind of move, move on. And so I've continued to write for Art Forum and, and various uh, exhibition catalogs after that. But, mm-hmm. uh, and in those formats, uh, you do have a responsibility to describe the thing you're talking about. Um, yes. It's the, kind of one of the primary roles of the, the first critic is to just get into the historical record what it is you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. and so that carried over into my more historical work, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can see that now. Well, let me ask you the follow-up question, I guess the logical follow-up question, which is how did you come to write this specific book? Like, how did you become interested in Corbe's landscapes and how did you decide, I got to write this? Uh, well, you know, at Columbia at the time when I was there, and I'm going back to your previous question for a little mm-hmm. bit here. Um, at the time, um, you know, for the studies of 20th century art, it was really one of the, the best programs, at least in my opinion, at the time. Um, Rosalind Krauss was there. Benjamin Buclo, Jonathan Crary, um, Barry Bergdahl in architecture. And uh, so for 20th century studies, it was incredibly strong. And uh, that was both the attraction, but then you realize when you have to formulate a topic, uh, you, the air becomes a little thin. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what happened was that I was uh, doing some you know, preliminary research in Europe on a topic on conceptual art, on post-war conceptual art. And as one does when one is a grad student, one takes trips to go see works of art. And mm-hmm. uh, that particular summer, I went from Hamburg all the way down Germany along the Rhine to Basel, um, oh, wow. just to you know, supplement my um, art historical education. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting to you know, see all this Northern Renaissance and, and Dutch art, uh, which I did see. But in each museum, there were usually two to three Corbet landscapes and oftentimes one or two masterpieces. And it became a recurring theme as I went from small German, West German town to small West German town. And at the end of the trip, I'm like, wow, that was a really unknown body of work. Uh, you know, not the Corbet that I learned in, in school. And I was fascinated. So I just did a, a preliminary uh, literature search. And, you know, there were, there were a handful of things, um, but mostly chapters and essays, and many of which were written in the 80s. Um, and so I thought, hmm, you know, maybe this is worth uh, writing about. Plus, it would solve this problem of, of how to distinguish myself from my um, peers and, and mentors, but mm-hmm. nonetheless staying within the field of, of modern art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just an earlier moment. Yeah. And... Uh, what struck me about them was their 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 sensuality and, and handling. Um, and you know, you always hear that Courbet painted with a palette knife and had incredibly kind of thick textures. But the the cliche is that it, it's so thick that it looks like uh, mortar or some unruly paste. But what struck me about these works was that they gave this sense of in, incredible relief, but were nonetheless painted not so thickly, um, mm-hmm. in fact, with very slimmed down paint layers uh, in very measured touches. Um, so 
that became the, the starting point for what became this book about Corbet's landscape. Uh, but it was originally that initial kind of conundrum, you know, why do these things look so thick when they are in fact not that thickly painted, mm-hmm. contrary to what the image of him was already even in the 19th century. Yeah. I love that when uh, when a dissertation begins with a conundrum, you you know you've you've hit on something that you know is worth analyzing, and if you if you do it right, then it really can be you know a kind of glorious first book. I'm going to ask you, Paul, to speak up a little bit. My my fear is that you're saying such great things, and I want to make sure that the the audio, which I just notoriously have problems with on this podcast, is super loud. So project for us a little bit more, and and let's hope that that uh, it's just me hearing your audio being a little bit more diminished compared to mine. Let me ask you the tough question right up front here. Let's just get it out of the way. I feel like this is a little bit snarky, but it has to be asked. Corbet is one of these figures who have been written about to such a voluminous extent. I mean, I think an art historian could probably spend the rest of their career trying to just read the scholarship on Corbet. There have been so many people in numerous languages, I mean, in French and German and English, who've written on Corbet. Why another book on Corbet is, of course, going to be something that people are going to think maybe when they see this book on Yale's list. What did you feel had to be said? I mean, you've already kind of gotten us into this with this conundrum that you started with about maybe something of uh, something we take for granted or think we know about Corbet's landscapes that proves not to be true when you see them in person. But how did you get over this feeling? Or did you have this feeling of, oh, am I really going to write another book or add another book <laughs> on Corvée? No, no, that is certainly the big question. And, and the answer is also, can also be very long. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> certainly, if you go to any shelf in a library, um, you know, it's an entire row of Corvée books, and many of which were written in the last you know, three decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, there's a lot, and, and that's not even counting what was written before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming from a background in, in 20th century art and, and, and in art that is not referential um, often, you know, I was attuned to that aspect of Corbet that is not so easily amenable to a iconographic reading mm-hmm. of figures essentially. Uh, Many of these landscapes don't have figures, but they are striking for the way they are painted. And in narratives of 19th century art, uh, the liberation of gesture, the kind of undoing of academic norms is often allied with impressionism and the painting of contemporary subjects in the open air. And what struck me about these Courbets is that that is not at all the case. They are not in the open air. They are not about Parisian urban life. Um, yet they are nonetheless very inventive in terms of uh, the pictorial mark, which would become very important for modernism, you know, through Impressionism to Cezanne and onto Cubism. Um, so I felt that that Ariadne's thread through modern art was one that had not been addressed by the Corbet scholarship, or, or, or if it had, it was in bits and pieces and never as a overarching narrative that could be connected all the way to the 20th century. 
-hmm. So that was going to be my lead in. And I never, you know, pretended from the beginning that I was going to, going to overthrow <laughs> decades of scholarship. <laughs> but I did think that there was a story to be told um, and that it was not just limited to the story of a particular technique or particular genre, but a way of art making that had important uh, effects on the history of, of art. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm, I'm glad I asked you about it just so that we could kind of like get that justification out of the way. And, and it gets us a little bit into what you do in this book. And I should mention that the book uh, has kind of a classic structure. It has an introduction at the beginning and a coda at the end. And then in between um, are what I felt were four really manageable chapters. I have to compliment you, Paul. I never felt like, oh, this chapter is never going to end. You didn't, you know, sometimes you read books that have this three or four chapter structure and they're so long that it's very difficult to get through them. But these, I don't know, your writing really moved. And I should say, too, this book is so beautifully designed. I mean, it, it just like from the moment I got it, the cover, the interior, Yale just did a job with this that that is kind of astounding. It's so modern. It's very chic. Uh, I mean, it feels very of our moment how they designed this. So the four chapters that are within it, I'll just say the names of them, and then we, we begin kind of getting into them. You have chapter one is bags of paint in glassy skins. Uh, chapter two is when, lang when landscape became language. Chapter three, Milk of the Sea. And chapter four is Cut with a Palette Knife, um, which of course reminds me a little bit of Hannah Hush's uh, cut, cut with a Kitchen Knife. Yep, Paul is shaking his head as though I've, I've hit onto something. That they're all really slick chapter titles that are very enticing too. Um, I'm trying to think what I want to ask you. Maybe it's a follow-up question to what I already said, because in the introduction, you you nod, as you, I think you have to, to to the scholarship that's been done, as you said, kind of scattered in various places. Um, but so many luminaries within our field have talked about Corbet's landscapes, though not at the kind of sustained book length level that you have. But what that forces you to do from the very beginning that had to have been kind of scary, so tell me if it was or if it wasn't, is engage with some real luminaries in our field. You have to talk about T.J. Clark's interpretation of these. You talked a little bit about Clement Greenberg and how he's affecting discourse on Corbet. Michael Fried, of course, looms very large. And then maybe a little bit more peripherally, but they come in later in the book, Petra Chu and Linda Nochlin. I mean, these, these are some of the, the most heavyweight hitters in our field. Was it intimidating to kind of grapple and I would say make clear who you kind of agree with and who you don't? I mean, from the intro, it's already clear you don't buy this anthropomorphic reading that is so common, um, especially among feminist scholars, where the interpretation goes uh, that the paintings, especially of certain grottos, are veiled representations, maybe not so veiled representations of female sex organs. You make it clear you don't buy these interpretations. So how did this kind of grappling with the work of, of really, you know, important scholars, how did that drive this? Yeah, I mean, it's always a difficult uh, job to, you know, in, in any work, let alone something on Courbet, to, to get through the dreaded literature review. Yeah. And I call it dreaded because I very much, <laughs> when I wrote this, did not want it to sound like a dissertation turned book. 
mm. or um, you know the introduction to a dissertation where you you are required to do that type of parsing of the scholarship. I'll just jump in and say, I don't think it does. I read a lot of books where I that is a factor and I'm a little bit disappointed, but it's almost like you're too spicy for it to for it to have been a dissertation. I mean, you just you wouldn't make the moves that you make if this was just a, a dissertation lit review. And, and to just return to your, your um, comment on the titles, I weighed the risk of having titles that do not indicate at all what the topic of the chapter is going to be. I could just as easily say chapter two, grottos, chapter three, mm-hmm. seascapes, chapter four, Corbain impressionism. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't want to signal it so directly. I wanted there to be a little bit of kind of intrigue and, and mystery. Um, so that's why I use those evocative titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to break things up, as you, as you notice, I, there are subtitles within the text that I also tried to make, uh, you know, for good reading. Um, so I was very conscious um, of trying to not have the usual scarly tone um, when writing about these landscapes, which is also, I think, why Yale decided to go with the design that they did, um, mm. which I can talk about maybe a little bit later, because that's another mm-hmm. story in of, of itself. Um so my, my strategy was instead of going, you know, Professor X said this, Professor Y says this, I decided, well, I can't talk about every single person, but I can talk about five main points or, or avenues of approach to these works. And some of them are aligned strongly with an individual or group of individuals, and some of them are more dispersed through the literature, like the anthropomorphic reading. Uh, and so I just organized them as such um, mm-hmm. and tried to cover the range and you know, paying respect to all the, the great authors who have, have written about this. And, and I say in the introduction, you know, look, this entire book could have been about the reception of Corbet yeah. and Corbet's studies. And I can't do that. And I can just barely cover uh, what have, has been said about the landscapes. But I'll try to, to boil it down to five basic readings. Um, and so they were, um, you know, let's say the social art historical reading, which has two variants, um, the uh, symbolic reading of them, the kind of high modernist reading of them, and the anthropomorphic reading. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how I decided to lay it out. And I, I, once I did lay that out, I also signaled to the reader that okay, I'm not really going to go back to this throughout the rest of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm laying it out now so that we can get to what I want to say yeah. uh, and what is my contribution, hopefully, to this field. And so I, I don't really return to those arguments except obliquely throughout the text, which I also think helps it flow, uh, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think it's it's very effective. It's sort of like you had to do it, you did it, and then you moved on and and very quickly got into what you wanted to say. So maybe this is the moment where I, I should ask you, as difficult as it is, I always feel like this is another unfair question. I wouldn't want to be asked this about my book, but what do you argue for, Paul, in this book? What is the contribution that you want to make, the takeaway, the the kind of nutshell soundbite that you see as important about Corbet's landscapes and their relationship to modern painting? Well, I, I think one of the um, kind of 
traditional readings of landscape in the 19th century uh, is that in some ways, especially pre-impressionist landscape, is that it's an escape from history, that mm-hmm. it, it is a withdrawal from society. Um, and those of us who've been in the countryside during the pandemic know all about that, because it is a form of escapism in a sense. But what I wanted to show was that it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. That landscape is of that moment where there was a growing historical consciousness, but it is not reflected in a kind of approach to painting that is based on history painting and narrative and the kind of dominance of the human figure in certain situations. Um, and one of the ways I did that was by linking it to um, certain discourses in the natural sciences and literature that are contemporaneous with the landscapes that are trying to kind of delve past the superficial image that nature gives to kind of peel back the layers of its formation. And that is something that linguists were doing with language and that geologists were doing with uh, the history of the earth. You know, taking the, let's say, the 18th century conceptions of those fields and discovering that if you go into the roots of words or the strata of a landscape in geology, that there is another story to be told that is the one that has either been hidden, repressed, or is the unofficial story. Um, And one of the the second chapter about uh, when landscape became language is very much about Courbet's rather intense um, dialogue with individuals of those fields at a very personal level, um, just at the moment that he's painting these incredible grotto um, paintings that um, if one looks at the book or online, um, look really primordial and and kind of encroaching uh, in a way that landscape was not depicted before Courbet. And then the other um, kind of issue I was interested in was basic kind of almost a kind of uh, theoretical one about how does an artist go about turning matter into an image? And what are the stages by which one does that? Because it was very, very regimented and controlled um, through the academy system, but also just for centuries of tradition, how you made an image. And Courbet really is a rupture in that, or let's say, yeah, a kind of point of, of, of crisis in that tradition. And, you know, he really kind of went back to, you know, how do I take this sticky stuff, oily stuff, paint and make an image out of it while keeping nonetheless some of the physical properties there in the image? And I, I think he plays in very interesting ways, particularly in his representations of water um, and waves and sand with the capacity of paint to both depict nature but also share the same physical qualities, which is why they have such a, a magnetic attraction for the viewer, um, mm-hmm. this, this sensuality and organicism of the surface. It's more than just there's a lot of paint on there. Yeah. It's how the matter or the substance relates to the formal image. Um, and kind of in the broader picture of art history, I think that, in a way, connects with certain things in in medieval art where where materials are treated differently, and certainly looking forward to the emphasis on making in in 20th century art. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think it's it's not just an intervention to Courbet studies or even 19th century studies, but in this kind of broader 
historical discussion of how artists make images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I'm glad you described it that way. And um, I'm glad that you brought up chapter two when landscape became language. And maybe I'll kind of stick with that. We're jumping ahead and, and we'll, we'll revert back a little bit because I do have questions about those earlier chapters. But it's in this one that you really establish these three basic types of strokes, you call them, that Corbet makes or uses to construct these landscapes. Um, and they're the dab, the scrape or smear, and the deposit. And as I was reading this, I mean, not only do I just kind of love that, it's especially because it's a chapter I feel like I could assign to students and they would get a lot out of it, especially if they are painters themselves or artists, because they want to understand how others build images. They're at that point where they're very interested in that. Um, But then, you know, just regular viewers, I think, standing in front of these paintings are also interested in that. It made me think so much of Robert Herbert's work on Monet a very famous article we all have to read in graduate school. Um, And I saw, I immediately went to your bibliography because I was like, oh, it's going to be there. And it was there. And I thought, oh, I wonder how that piece um, contributed to maybe the methods or the ideas that you put forward, this kind of breaking down of the as you said, the the way that that these paintings are constructed somewhat deceptively in terms of what we think we're seeing versus how they actually look in person. This leads me maybe also to ask a related question about the reproductions in the book. And that Herbert article is partly famous because it has these extreme details. And that's not something you do a lot in this book. There are a few detail shots strategically placed where you talk about specific things, but there weren't a whole, whole lot. And I wondered if that was something of a choice where you know, when you're talking about a specific kind of mark, say where the dab appears in one of these grotto paintings, did you grapple at all with, ooh, should I include a detail here or should I kind of describe this in in that critical voice that you do such that the the viewer will refer back to the painting and find it themselves? Well, Alison, you're pointing to one of the notorious difficulties of uh, writing on Courbet and illustrating Mm -hmm. it in that Mm -hmm. the effect that he produces in his paintings is so related to your personal kind of visual experience in front of the work, that it is very difficult for a camera to capture it, even with digital technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I almost thought about putting a little warning at the very beginning saying, you know, you're going to see that reproductions sometimes do not convey the texture or the, there's too much shine because of the lighting, but you need the lighting to see the the strokes in the first place. Um, but I think the, the uh, press did a good job of using the latest kind of image um, reproductive technologies to, to at least make that more uh, visible. Um, so one of the things about this book and, and a lot of more recent books is that the, the ink is printed on the paper so that it rests on top of the paper rather than being kind of saturated into the weave. Um, and so that allows for a greater uh, range of tones mm-hmm. um, and allows, at least I think, for the, the gestures to be more visible. Um, so that, along with the designer's decision to make these large two-page spreads and, and you know, all the way to the edge of the, the book, um, kind of ameliorated the 
or you know, made it not so necessary to have so many details. Um, and the thing about the details, although they help illustrate the argument, when one sees these works, and one of the things I, I like about them is that when you see them afar, you notice there's something special about them and you keep moving closer waiting to see when the moment that the paint becomes just paint and not a representation of a landscape. But what's interesting about them is that as you get closer, you, you just see more and more forms in the landscape that happen to be paint-like rather mm -hmm. than the illusion just collapses at a, a certain moment, which it does for almost all other paintings of the period. And that effect also cannot be captured. I mean, I compare it to going um, from a telescopic view to a microscopic one in a steady zoom, um, mm -hmm. rather than there being a jump cut from a far view to a near view. Uh, so in a way, you know, I, I decided, well, this is something you really have to see for yourselves, but I'll give you the, the template or the, the attack plan to go look at it. So <laughs> dividing the, the marks into these three uh, divisions uh, was partially for the viewer or the reader to, to be armed with that. But also it was just my own way of trying to describe his unique way of painting. Because if it is not super thick and heavy and indiscriminately laid on the canvas, then what is it? And you, you realize when you look at them that they, they, it's incredible subtle how he uses the palette knife. And even that it's sometimes not the palette knife, but a brush mark meant to look like a palette knife mark. Mm -hmm. And that it's not thick, but that is actually slimmed down to create what, what I call a kind of epidermal patch. Um, which takes those different forms of the scrape, the dab, and the deposit. Mm -hmm. Now, you were very um, perceptive that, you know, Robert Herbert was at the background, because he's, he's not only there in this chapter, but his writings on Rousseau are also important for me in the, the chapter where I talk about Theodore Rousseau. Mm -hmm. And it, he, he, Herbert is known mostly for his History of Impressionism book, but Many of the things he wrote earlier in his career on Seurat, Millet, Rousseau, and Monet have this attentiveness to detail that I, I find quite remarkable. And certainly one of the inspirations in the um, Monet article, uh, I believe it's called Method and Meaning in Monet, mm -hmm. was that he took you know, the commonplace that Monet applied color with these layers of, of gestures and showed that actually he created this texture of of neutral or white strokes and then painted the color on top of it that sometimes yeah. didn't match the direction of the brush strokes. Mm -hmm. And that idea of taking what seems to be obvious and showing, in fact, it's an illusion is in many ways what I saw in Courbet. Yeah. That, yes, supposedly he painted in thick palette knife strokes that have a lot of relief, but no, 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 when you look closer, it's, you know, something different altogether. It's thin in a couple layers, but nonetheless uh, layers that you can identify. So it's neither super flat nor super thick, but in this interesting gray zone in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad I was sort of prescient maybe in, in snipping that out or I've read, I've read the scholarship I need to, to, to be able to, to kind of draw these things out as I'm, I'm reading, you know, great new books like yours. And I want to ask you, about comparisons in this book, because I I was struck 
really from from the very beginning, from chapter one, um, you make these comparisons between the paintings that Courbet and Corot were working side by side and making in 1862. Um, and then you compare a couple of works they produced. Um, also, uh, later in that chapter, you, you talk about Theodore Rousseau and, and how, how we can kind of compare what he's doing versus what Courbet is doing. You know, between the the really descriptive, really juicy moments, let's say, of of formal or visual analysis and comparisons, you know, that in many ways drove the book. And I I always talk to students about, you know, these are the two things you have to get good at. You have to get good at describing really carefully as a means of making your argument, and you have to get really savvy about what you compare to what as again a means of making your argument. So how self-conscious were you about this technique or do you have advice, let's say for students or listeners more generally about how forceful comparisons, how effective comparisons can be in the way that they were in this book? Well, just in general, I think comparisons are, are the, one of the fundamental building blocks of the discipline of art history. Me too. <laughs> it yeah. is a, you know, one of the things about art history is that it's a, a, a form of, of, human endeavor that is not language, is not music, uh, is not documents, it's not text. And it has its own history, which allows us to do these comparisons of, of world art and not sound like we're crazy. Um, <laughs> and from a methodological perspective, um, I think that if you make an argument about a work of art and you can't say why it applies to this work and not another, then that really weakens your interpretation because it's not specific at all. You, if you can say this about, you know, if you can say one work is about, um, you know, a certain representation of nature and this other one is true, yet they're totally different, then how do you, you square that? And that actually is historically what happened with Courbet. There were certain realist critics who say, you know, there's no difference between a Courbet and a Corot. I mean, Champlery, the kind of realist critic that one most associates with the Courbet's early work, said exactly that. Mm-hmm. And many art historians, in fact, took his line of argument. But what was great for me, and, and in this sense, I was lucky in a way, is that that exact example, Corot and Courbet, could be analyzed historically because they painted side by side Mm -hmm. and that we actually have two pairs of paintings by them that were painted side by side, which are two of the rare examples of side by side paintings before the mid 1860s, before Impressionism. Um, We just don't have many paintings by two artists painted at exactly the same time of the same site. So it was the perfect moment for uh, what you could call formal analysis, although I don't like to use the term because sometimes it separates it from are historical analysis, and I think they're all interwoven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's just say for, yeah. for deep comparison. <laughs> uh, and then I always imagined from the very beginning that one of the goals I, ha- I had for this book was to distinguish Courbet from romantic landscape painting, as it was understood at the time. And Corot and Rousseau were two representatives of the, of the main schools, if you want to call them that, at the time, you know, uh, historical landscape painting and, and romantic Barbizon school of painting. Since it was very important to make that distinction, 
I knew I had to weave them in, into the, ideally, the first chapter. I was also lucky in that there was a work in the Louvre that I just stumbled upon by sheer accident, and it happened to be on the wall at the time, of this Rousseau kind of drawing on canvas mm-hmm. of the source of the Lison River. Now, that has never, as far as I know, been reproduced in the Courbet literature before. And that's because no one really knew that Rousseau painted that site because that work is hardly ever shown. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I saw it, I thought, well, I think the Courbet painted that, but it looks nothing like the Courbet, as I explained in the book. It's drawn, yeah. the point of view is different. Um, the whole feel of the, the landscape is different. And so that allowed me to compare them very directly. Mm-hmm. And so it just worked out that I not only compared Courbet to Corot and Rousseau, but that had actual examples of them painting the same thing. So yeah. it, if you can, I mean, to tell your students, if you, if you find that and it hasn't been talked about before, that's already something important that you can do. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about I, the Holy Grail. Yeah. yeah. And I would say that particularly in the studies of 19th century art, which, um, you know, sometimes resembles, uh, you know, art historical studies of the Renaissance of, of an altarpiece where you take this one work and go through its iconography, you know, uh, the Déjeuner Soleur by Manet. Uh, and that takes, because it's such a complicated work, it takes a long time to go through that, that you sometimes forget to compare it to other paintings of the same subject around the same time, um, which will, it's through the opposition and through the difference that the originality of that work comes out, really. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was another reason why I wanted a lot of comparisons in there. Mm-hmm. Um, because these landscapes are not meant to be these grand statement salon paintings. They're done in series, and they're meant to be in dialogue with other landscapes, both in the same series and in series by other artists. So basically, a different kind of painting requires a different kind of mode of interpretation. And I felt, going back to your initial question about why it was important to do this book, I wanted to provide just another way of thinking about painting at that time that that requires a different mode mode of historical inquiry and that requires a different mode of description. Mm -hmm. And that's why both comparisons and close looking at works of art are very important to the book. Yeah. And it gets us maybe away from some of the interpretations of these that had come to dominate, and I'm not denigrating these in any way because I think they make a lot of sense, but so often these landscapes are talked about as, well, Courbet just wanted to sell. And these were selling. He was doing well in Belgium. He's doing well in Germany. He's traveling there, which is why you're able to find so many of these, as you said before, in, yeah. in those places today. And it, you know, it, it sort of nods to that as, okay, that's, you know, that's one explanation. But you basically say, I don't think that's the whole story here. I want to ask you about another maybe stylistic or interpretive thing that I saw you doing again from really from the very beginning, from the introduction, but then scattered throughout the book. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think how to describe it. Um, 
it's, it's about intention, I guess. It's about establishing the intention of the artist or why you think he did something that you see him doing in these paintings. You say at one point in the intro, quote, he, as in Corbet, wanted us to feel as if we were experiencing the world at an earlier stage of its creation. In chapter two, you talk about Corbet painted ancient grottos and shrouded riverbeds because they were uninhabited, primeval, and felt almost unescapable. In chapter three, you say Corbet didn't depict aspects of modern leisure at seaside resorts, quote, because of his overriding commitment to the representation of matter. And I'm giving, I'm putting these little breadcrumbs out because I, I want both listeners to get a little bit of a sense of, of you know, the, the kinds of interpretations that are in this book, but also your voice. But I have to admit, Paul, I was like, oh, danger, danger, Paul. Like, you know, I, whenever I see an art historian saying he wanted us to feel something or he did this because here's the reason and then that's it. I always worry, you know, intention is maybe the, the trickiest thing that we deal with. It's the thing we should be talking about, we have to talk about, but it's also so hard to establish from a historical standpoint. How much did you feel this danger as you were writing these lines? You know, did do any of these ping you the ones that I read in terms of like, oh, yeah, I really kind of grappled with how to say that because I know it's dangerous or... Did you just feel really confident? And you're like, yeah, this is what Corbe wanted us to feel. I'm just going to say it. Well, I, I have two ways of answering that. Um, okay. First of all, obviously, we can't know the artist's intention because we can't read their minds. And we weren't there at the time. And even if we did ask the artist, what were you doing in that painting? You can't necessarily say what they said is it the truth. Right. So it's, true. Yes. Artists lie, everyone. We're, we're telling you right now. Yeah, they have <laughs> or sometimes memory. they don't know. They yeah. don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Or they can't express it or they remember badly. Um, but my uh, way of thinking about that is that essentially when we, we come up with our ideas about how an artist works or what they're trying to do, it's, it's a fiction we create for ourselves about what we think they're doing. So I presume from the very beginning, we can't know. But I'm constructing my fiction in, in almost monographic biographical, biographical form of the thought process that might have happened along the way, even though it's, it's really mine. It just happens to correlate, at least I hope it does, with what evidence remains. Mm -hmm. the, the alternative is that, um, I mean, I'm not sure what you have in mind here exactly, but let's say we were just to show all the statements and documents that pertain to this work. Well, uh, that has to be put in some sort of order anyway. Um, and I just think that for the reader and for our still kind of post-romantic way of thinking about artistic subjectivity, this kind of uh, pseudo-intention or like imagined intention is still one that I'm, I'm quite comfortable with. Um, and perhaps that has to do with the fact that I originally wrote on, on 20th century art and that way of writing is not necessarily taboo there, um, mm -hmm. especially on contemporary art. I mean, yeah. it's often the case, you know, ex-artist was trying to do this, uh, 
Now there you can sometimes point to what the artist said, but I actually think it's more interesting when they don't say it or where mm-hmm. you or where you disagree with what they say. Mm-hmm. So it, in the end, what I'm saying is that my text, like any discourse, is is a kind of open text and it's kind of not about the author, but about the reader uh, and how they take what is given to them. Mm. Interesting. Well, I I will say this about it, you know, uh, listeners, whether you agree or disagree with this interpretive model, I will, I prefer personally for an author to, to come out and make the kind of argument that you do and say, look, this is what I think he was feeling. This is why I think he did specifically what he did here in this painting. Then, Oh, you know, you read some of these more more sort of passive ways of doing it or more careful ways of doing it. And in the end, you're like, what were they arguing for? Like, I can't even figure out what what the claim is here. And I don't think I never had that impression in your book. Every every chapter I knew what the takeaway was. It was very clear what you were what you were, whether I necessarily agreed with it by the end or not. And I think in most cases I was I was quite convinced, even if I still had lingering questions like like this interview is proving. I want to move to chapter three, Milk of the Sea, which um, has so much packed into it. I mean, I don't think there's any way I, I could could ever summarize it, but it's about the seascapes, as you kind of mentioned and hinted at before. Um, and you do a lot of work to help us understand in this chapter where the seascapes fit with what you've already been establishing are the kind of driving forces and mechanisms behind the landscapes more generally. Um, You talk about the general equivalence of the pictorial field here, what you call Courbet's touch-by-touch technique, all sorts of interesting things about these seascapes, the abolishment of figuration and narrative. I mean, I could go on and on, the viewpoints, all sorts of stuff. But I was excited about this chapter, maybe because of the work that I'm doing currently, because you finally addressed some of Corbet's nude women in landscapes and seascapes here, um, which may be what many readers coming to this book know more about. You know, when they think about his landscapes, they may not have necessarily seen the kind of pure land and seascapes that you described, but but they'll know these infamous naked women, you know, bathing um, in these spaces. And you talk specifically, I should say, about the spring and about the woman in the waves, which are both from 1868. Talk about another kind of interesting, you know, both in the same year, comparable, but very different. You know, you talk about Corbet's, um, I'm trying to think, I have several questions about this chapter. And I want to I want to ask the, the most, maybe the most important or salient one. Let me go to the end where you talk about the woman in the waves, um, which will be a painting many, especially New York listeners know, because it's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it seems to be always up. I don't feel like I've ever visited and it was down. It's right there next to um, his 1866 woman with a parrot. And you talk about the froth from the waves around this particular nude as, quote, metaphorically constituting a kind of milk of the sea. And there's a comparison going on here that is bigger than we can get into with the historian Jules Michelet. Um, And then you talk about there being a kind of association with maternal nourishment going on here in terms of how he's painted this froth and how weird the froth is, how weird it is compared to the body. I have just always thought, Paul, there is just nothing maternal about Corbet's nude women. I, it almost is weird how how 
especially comparing to artists maybe like Renoir, where the maternal is, is so constantly ever-present. So I'm wondering how you arrived at this conclusion. I'm also thinking that froth is so often compared not to milk, but to male ejaculate, uh, which you know is kind of grotesque, but gets us back to this anthropomorphic, anti-feminist sentiment that seems to undergird so much of Corbet's work aside from the landscapes. So maybe this was the moment where I was most stuck, where I was like, what? Milk? No. <laughs> it doesn't even look like milk. Um, was was this something that you grappled with a lot before you arrived at it, or maybe in peer review that, that there was some back and forth, or you stand by this claim and, and we should just move on? Um, it actually did not come up in peer review. Um, okay. The question of the feminist scholarship on Courbet, that certainly is uh, relevant um, and, and did come up in a, in a general sense. Mm-hmm. With Courbet, especially in the 1860s, although it's true for his earlier work as well, the female nude figure as the figure of desire of the, the symbol of eroticism is, is unavoidable, uh, as it is for many artists of the period. It's, it's in the air. I mean, you just yeah. cannot ignore it. Um, mm-hmm. There are entire salons filled with naked Venuses and all kinds of um, goddesses that really look like contemporary models. And that's, of course, one of the great kind of, um, kind of aperçus of, of Manet's Olympia, that mm-hmm. you, know, you have this conflation of the two. Courbet certainly was reacting to Manet, and in fact, there was a tit for tat between them. Um, you know, who can do the contemporary nude slash goddess in the most modern way? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the women in the waves is a particular case, um, and I guess I'll start by saying that the association of woman with nature, you know, has is kind of as old as human history, mm-hmm. um, and so. When I say maternal, maybe I don't necessarily mean it as, as mother and child, but the female figure as a, as a personification of the, the generative or the fertility, the kind of production, biological kind of production side of hmm. femininity, um, which Courbet is tapping into. Uh, so this is not a mother with child, but it is a figure that is rather robust, healthy, um, curvaceous, and clearly associated with the kind of abundant side of nature, um, waves and, and froth. Um, I, someone did ask me about the, the milk. Um, and indeed, I was reading it through um, a chapter of Michelet's work on the sea called The, the Sea of Milk. Um, mm-hmm. And since I'm making in that book a strong correlation between the metaphor of substance in Michelet and the metaphor of substance in Courbet, that's where I went. Uh, mm-hmm. Although if it was semen, um, that's still a bodily substance and it's still yeah. sort of associated with production. So it's not too crazy. But the way that the, the froth is around the breasts, these incredibly kind of eroticized breasts, that... Mm-hmm. I think that was the association that you know, would have most come to mind. Yeah. But I, th- I think it's important to say that 
the women in the waves is the kind of figuration of substance that is not the primary mode of the seascapes that I like to talk about that have no figures. Um, it shows what Courbet could have done but did not. Mm. And I say, I, I believe at the very end, you know, it's for the best that he didn't do that because <laughs> it makes it all too easy to uh, have our experience of the material world filtered by another person. Mm-hmm. Whereas what really happens in the figureless seascapes is a corporeality or materiality without a particular body. It's just a field of substance, uh, yeah. like being, I call it, in a non-claustrophobic room. Uh, and so my, my response to a lot of the literature about the eroticism and the feminization of nature is that Courbet is actually interested in a kind of sensuality that is not focused through a particular gender or gendered body. It's just the body as substance, which is ungendered. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's how I was framing the sensuality of the seascapes. Um, Got it. Got it. I want to. I see that we're running out of time, but I have one more question that that really is um, it's going to bother me if I don't ask it because <laughs> uh, by the end of this book, it was really the only thing that I was like, oh, I want this. I want this still. So in chapter four, the cut with a palette knife, which precedes the coda, uh, which we won't have time to talk about. Listeners will just have to get the book and read it and and enjoy and you know email Paul their questions and things or talk to him after he gives uh, lectures. I think there's one upcoming at the, the barns that people can catch. So this is such a cool chapter because you really depart from Corbet in some ways to, to think about how he inspired other artists. And this, I think, will be something a lot of readers are very interested in. You talk about or you compare, uh, again, really kind of strategically and, and very productively with Manet, with Renoir, with Degas, with Pissarro and with Cezanne. And the Cezanne, oh, man, I mean, this book made me not only really excited to look at Corbet's landscapes in person again, but to see some Cezannes in person again. And I am going to go see that show in Chicago. So you've made me very eager for, for getting like up close and personal with these things. But what I want to ask you about that I found so intriguing in this last full chapter was the bit of psychoanalyzing of Cezanne that you do here, where you talk about this love-hate relationship he had with his father, and so many have with their fathers, let's say more generally, as driving the pictorial conflict in his work. And I immediately wrote in the margin, ah, I want, I want you to do this with Corbet. Why, in the same sense, was it so important to Corbet to, as you say, generate the sensation of being immersed in matter? Why did he, is there a similar explanation, create the illusion of this kind of eternally pleasurable world of substance? Is there an answer? Well, you know, I I almost want to go back to what you said about artistic intention, because my bugaboo is psychobiography. Mm. Um, And I'm obviously playing with it here. Um, yeah. and, but I think there's historical reasons for that. Uh, the circle of Cezanne at that time uh, included Zola, of course. And they were both really, really fascinated by the artistic temperament or personality. So psycho- the psychology of the artist was actually one of their main theoretical preoccupations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that the artistic subject is 
subject to drives and instincts and, and shaped by the material world. And that often these desires and drives are in conflict with each other. That comes out not so much in Zola's art criticism, but in his novels. Um, and if you look at their correspondence, they're, they're very interested in, in violence and, and almost the eroticism of death. Mm-hmm. So for them, uh, and for Cezanne, to take an approach that deals with the psychology of the artist and its parallel in painting is not a stretch, I would argue. And uh, many historians of literature have argued about Zola at just this moment that Cezanne is painting these portraits of his father and his uncle as almost proto-psychoanalytic in nature. So what I would say is that I'm not doing a psychoanalytic reading or certainly not a psychobiographical reading, but I'm drawing on those concepts to try to explain why Cezanne's use of the palette knife is so different from Courbet. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the cliche that we have of Courbet as a mason painter or a, a kind of painter de classe really applies to Cezanne in, at this moment mm-hmm. and not to Courbet. The reason why I couldn't do the same for uh, Courbet's eternally pleasurable world is that I don't think that the discourse around his landscapes or his own thinking about it delved into um, the psyche as much. I mean, I very much frame it as a, an approach to how to represent matter in painting and to have substance as much as, it, as you can, real substance, in an illusory world that historically in the history of art, in the history of European painting, does not want too much substance on the canvas in order for its truth value to hold. So it really, it's, it's really a question of the, the different context of the two artists. Um, and, you know, there's certain, there's certain artists like Van Gogh and Cezanne that lend themselves to that, and mm-hmm. probably too much in the literature. Yeah. But, and there's certain artists that uh, it's less effective with. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm satisfied with that answer as, as much as I may have, you know, want, wanted that. I, I understand why you didn't go there in Corbe's case, the way that you sort of did at the end of the book with Cezanne. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for this. I want to ask you the traditional quick last question here on New Books uh, Network, which is just to tell us briefly what you're working on now. What can we look forward to coming out from you hopefully soon? So uh, having worked on landscape painting in the 1860s for a, a good chunk of time, uh, my new project is about sculpture in the 1880s, uh, okay. particularly the ceramic sculptures of Paul Gauguin, uh, which, oh boy. which like Courbet's landscapes, are a body of work that is much less studied in Gauguin's studies as the landscapes are in Courbet's studies. Um, mm-hmm. And... Gauguin, you know, is known for, you know, being very inventive in color, but he was also really important in the history of of modern art for bringing back myth um, and particularly world myth uh, as something that's okay to have in painting. Moreover, that that interest in religiosity and and the mythical was carried over into non-traditional media like wood wood carving and ceramic sculpture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the whole project is called The Other Gauguin because 
it is the Gauguin that we don't know, but it also is about the idea that Gauguin thought of himself as a, an other. And that, of course, has a, is a very controversial topic, which maybe we can save for another podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, well, I will yeah. have to interview you yeah. about that book for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, this sense that of his, you know, calling himself a savage and a child and embracing the wild beast side of himself. Mm-hmm. And it's really about how you have hybridity <laughs> in art um, at all levels, you know, uh, formal material, but also uh, conceptual and, and um, subjective hybridity. Yeah, the other Gauguin. All right, everybody, keep keep an eye out for it. Paul likes the bad boys of art history for sure. Between Corvée and Gauguin, these oh, I think about these ceramics of, I don't know, like weird disembodied hands groping the inside of women's skulls, and I think, oh my lord. So I will definitely be contacting you when that book comes out to talk about it as well. All right, everybody, you have been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Paul Galvez about his new book, Corbet's Landscapes, The Origins of Modern Painting. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can contact me through my website at allison-lee.com or find me on Instagram at Professor Lee. Thanks so much for listening.